Hi guys, welcome to the Art of Acquisitions podcast. Here we discuss how you can create cash flow and grow your wealth with acquisitions. We have a great guest lineup, including Craig. Craig bought two businesses with 10 million in sales, no money down. And Alan, Alan has led multiple deals ranging in value from 1 million to 9 billion. Yes, that was right, 1 million to 9 billion. Art of Acquisitions, simply the fastest strategy to create cash flow and grow your wealth. So welcome everybody to Taylor Capital's uh, live broadcast. We're uh, we're on the podcast of the art of acquisitions. And uh, at Taylor Capital, what we like to do is we love to help investors create cash flow and grow their wealth through acquisitions. Um, acquisitions of businesses and commercial property. And why is that? Because, well, simply we, we believe it's the fastest route to cash flow and kind of grow your wealth. Um, and we're doing a, a series of podcasts and today we've got the absolute uh, privilege of having Trevor, Trevor Crawley here. He's been involved in a lot of different deals, as we'll find out very soon. Um, and he started off in Morgan Stanley and now has you know evolved through his journey and, and works in real estate just now. But let's let's peel back the layers of Trevor, find out who who is Trevor uh, Crawley and um let's introduce him right now. So Trevor, could you introduce yourself? Firstly, welcome onto the show. And secondly, could you give the viewers a little bit of insight is who is Trevor? Sure. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Um, so I started at Morgan Stanley uh, on the retail side in 1998. Um, had a, uh, a great time there. Loved that company. Loved the intellectual capital um, that I was involved with every single day. People and the resources were phenomenal. Just absolutely loved it. Um, I spent about 10 years there. And um, I was on the retail side, as I mentioned, was in uh, man- uh, sales management for a short time as well. Um, I made a transition uh, to another company, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, for several years. Uh, and then from there, joined an RIA, um, which was a, a long-only equity fund, um, helped to develop their alternative investment platform. Um, so that is kind of what the timeline looks like. In fact, actually, just beyond that, um, I worked for a fund company um, where I was responsible for uh, advising uh, family offices, uh, financial advisors, et cetera, in the New York area, the mid-Atlantic area. Um, and we had alternative investments as our basically uh, theme for our shop there. We had a number of different funds, five mutual funds. Uh, six ETFs, and uh, yes, I was responsible for making sure everybody understood what they were all about. And then, out of all those funds, what was your, you know, your preferred alternative assets? You know, back in what we offered uh, at that shop, my preferred alternative asset was managed futures. Um, yeah, so I've had experience with managed futures that date back to two thousand, um, and you know, Dan, before the the podcast, you and I were chatting about. Um, evolution. And, you know, the equity markets, the asset markets have all evolved over the last two decades and have morphed into a variety of different things for people. Uh, Managed Futures is not cast aside from that. They've experienced the same thing. They've had their hardships, much of which I think has uh, stemmed from um, Fed intervention, that sort of thing. <clears throat> it's been kind of hard for them to kind of uh, make their way. But the the 
the manager that we had a relationship with was the second oldest CTA in the industry with a absolute stellar uh, track record. So it made it, it made it um, appealing for a lot of folks. It's been hard to beat the equity market over the last. And, and what's been the biggest, you know, staying on that evolution route, what, what has been the biggest thing that you've witnessed or, or, or experienced yourself um, in terms of the evolution of that, that, that fund hedge fund industry? They're like Morgan Stanley is a big beast. Obviously, they've morphed massively from where you, you know, worked in there for 10 years to where they are now. And it's going through two recessions as well, two big ones, um, you know, the financial crash and this pandemic. Um, what have you seen as the biggest evolution? And then we'll, obviously, because we're going to be at the end up talking about real estate, which you're, you love, I love, uh, and that's going through a massive evolution as well. But what, what is kind of Morgan Stanley, the big funds, what kind of evolution have they gone through? Yeah, well, you have to be nimble at times, right? So I remember when, you know, when I first got involved, um, it was the dot-com bubble, right? And basically, we were technology-driven. We had an analyst. Her name was Mary Meeker. She had big ties to Silicon Valley. Um, Everybody adored her um, for her relationship and and her success with uh, uh, companies like Netscape in in the 90s. And so she was wearing the big hat and everybody loved her and gave her the business. And we were going to return the favor by, you know, just piling everybody into tech stocks. And, uh, you know, and the migration went from stocks to bonds. And and in the hedge fund industry, I remember, um, you know, I was involved with that fund of funds. And uh, I remember, I don't know if anybody on this call will recall, but there was a group called Amaranth um, in Connecticut. Yeah, they were levered to the hilt on that gas. And that thing just imploded. And unfortunately, it was a fund of funds. And it it only hurt me by less than 5%. But, um, you know, that's just one example of, you know, somebody riding high on something that was destined to pop. And then when you lever yourself up, you're in big trouble. So levers, timing, um, evolution, really important lessons you've obviously learned through your life. In fact, you tell me this story, which I suppose is a great metaphor for timing, um, which was the one about the Facebook uh, shares. And yeah. t- tell everybody about that, because that's a fascinating story, because obviously what you're talking about is leverage, then also timing, you know, to get in and get out of things, if that's indeed your strategy or just long-term hold. But the, the Facebook share acquisition program, or whatever you want to call it, was quite a, an exciting story. T- tell the chaps about that because that's got timing in a nutshell. Um, yeah, it does. So it, it's it's interesting. You know, look, if you're in the right spot at the right time, you know, that could be just all the luck you need. Um, and the guy who, there's, there's a group of guys who came to me who and they were friends with, um, they were actually a private equity group who took a, a very well-known company um, public and uh, did very big things with them. And all of a sudden now their tree is growing and they're getting bigger and and stronger relationships with a lot of big power players. And one of them said, Hey, I've got all these shares of Facebook. And this was way before Facebook went public. And I'm trying to monetize it because, you know, I need to get on to my next project. Well, they turned to me and they said, Trevor, can you, can you help us here? And I said, all right, look, I mean, this is about strategy and brainstorming and leveraging the resources that you have. So I turned to my hedge fund group. Hey, guys, are you interested in this? This is Facebook. This is about 450,000 shares of it pre-IPO. Yeah, we're interested. 
and the type of shares that it that it that it was was um, unrestricted Class A shares, and that became a meaningful uh, piece of the puzzle here because Facebook later on um, started prohibiting the sale of uh, Facebook shares pre IPO because there was a secondary market that was created for um, shares that there was never a market for previously that were not public. And so um, we ended up not being able to get the hedge funds on board because Facebook was not going to open up their books for us to evaluate you know, the cash flow and determine what the valuation should be and what the share should be taken down at. So we said, okay, let's, let's figure this out. You know, There's 450,000 shares here. How are we going to get more traction with bigger groups? And so I said, all right, well, we got to get more shares. So essentially, I went out to a couple of other folks who had a large parcels of shares. And I said, hey, let's collectively bring this together. Um, and we ended up having between one and two million shares. Um, and we sold it to a hedge fund um, in a very small group private placement. Yeah. And this was this was all the acquisition of the shares, all pre-IPO. Yeah. Yeah. So I would imagine you got quite a nice little bump out of that, or the hedge fund did <laughs> <laughs> the, the hedge fund, I got paid, but the hedge fund really got paid. I can imagine. And did they hold on to the shares or was it a short term kind of play for them? Yeah, they kind of made their whole hedge, but they developed their whole hedge fund around this, um, which was, you know, a ballsy move, but it paid off. Yeah, fantastic. So I yeah. suppose that all comes down to contacts and opportunity timing, down to timing. Uh, as we have right now in this space, you know, the, the, the black swan of the pandemic has called a massive uh, shrinkage of time to pass to create this evolution that we're experiencing right now. And again, we've got a, an incredible timing right now, but we'll come to that in a second because for me, what's happening right now is super exciting. That, you know, in, from a financial point of view, you know, commercial property strategy point of view or real estate strategy point of view, um, obviously, What's happened has not been great for anybody. There's a lot of fallout happened yet to come from this. And that's, um, you know, not a good thing. But, that, you know, when in every bad thing, in every challenge, there's always a gift. There's always a phoenix that comes up. And if you can spot those phoenixes or anticipate what's going to be down the road um, and have that vision to see what's coming, then there's usually a massive opportunities happen after a crash, just like the, the financial crash. Yeah. So after, always. Always. Absolutely. And uh, I think this is probably one of the biggest. Uh, this is a decade of deals, if you ask me. And, uh, you know, I'm quite excited about it. Um, and it's because you're helping, you're serving. We are serving big funds, exit assets that are now non-core for them. You know, so you're actually providing service and then repurposing that to end users uh, and trying and doing our small part in fixing the shortage of the housing, you know, the housing crisis in the UK. But enough of that. I get excited about that because it's my thing. But um, you know, back to you. After Morgan Stanley, and you, you went to Bank of America. What you know? What was your journey from that point on? What were you doing, kind of, uh, in terms of deals? Because you did mention that you were there to try and provide advice to family offices, small businesses, family businesses that have amassed a certain amount of wealth, and then you kind of morphed, evolved again into this other kind of service provision. Can you tell us about that? Because I, I find that quite... Yeah. You know, it's funny because at that time, you know, we're, the theme seems to be timing here, right? Um, so at that time, I got to... I, I left Morgan Stanley uh, 
in January of 2007 and joined, you know, Bank of America Merrill Lynch the very next day. Well, that was kind of bad timing uh, because Bank of America absorbs Merrill Lynch. So was it was it no gardening leave back then? <laughs> you joined. What's the, that? Was it no gardening gardening leave back then? Where you had a, a probationary period where you couldn't join another uh, hedge fund? No. Oh right, right, right. Yeah. So um, you know, uh, yeah. That that is tougher today than it was back then. Um, but yeah, it, it was just kind of an unspoken rule that you would abide by certain things, and as long as you were able to do that, you could get around that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Wow. So basically, you know, Bank of America made a, 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 a probably a poor choice in taking down um, a bad mortgage company um, right at that very time, and then they were uh, hand fed. Uh, Merrill Lynch, and uh, it was massive culture clash, and uh, you know we had this 2007 debacle taking place, and I was sitting here going, all right, let me take a look at the uh, alternative investment landscape and see what we have over here. Well, we have Bain Capital; they're good. Geez, boy, we got a really limited lineup. So now I'm looking for options, right? And, and here's the interesting thing. Is that because you see a lot of this in the news today? Do you, are you familiar with SPACs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was big on SPACs and pipes back then. Can um, you just explain for anyone listening that doesn't know what a SPAC is? Um, sure. Yeah, a- absolutely. Well, I'll tell you. Number one, the reason why I was interested in it was because of the character traits that it possessed and what it was capable of delivering for me. So, um. It basically, a SPAC um, was in, in, I'll give you one example, maybe a two-year uh, uh, um, run uh, where they're capable of putting money to work. They do a pooling of capital. Um, they have somewhere between six and nine months to put it to work. Um, and all the while, at the time, you were earning interest on it. So I was getting about 3% on you know, cash and uh, not risking any of it. And if they didn't find a suitable investment, they could give it back. So they really weren't like any fund. They yeah. really weren't mandated to put it to work. And it was a very interesting time at that point. So it wasn't sure that, and there was a theme to each one, right? So for example, one that I was involved with was a sports, uh, you know, they could, they could get involved with sports acquisitions. So NFL teams, um, football teams over in England, et cetera. Um, and and it was a, a way to invest in something that was non-traditional because yeah. the traditional stuff was getting absolutely pulverized. Yeah. And it's really a, a special purpose vehicle set up just for to get pre-funded with a, a remit in mind to go and acquire X, Y, and Z, whatever that may be. And as long as the X, Y, and Z target met the KPIs, the criteria of the acquisition memorandum, you're kind of good to go to draw down kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. And the reason why I liked it is because, hey, we were, you know, I don't want to catch a falling knife. The equity market was getting absolutely hammered. Actually, every market was. And so I wanted to give my capital. I wanted to give my cash to somebody who had the ability to go pick and choose and was actually going to take those steps. I'm going to be very selective about what we're getting involved with. We've already done the due diligence. I have capital on hand, which, Dan, you and I talked about earlier. Cash is king. You know, when you when the rubble seems to be you know building up and is the highest that's exactly when you start picking through it yeah 
Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I suppose a SPAC is something we've thought about recently. I haven't really gone down the rabbit hole of a SPAC, special purpose acquisition company. Um, but it's it's one where, you know, realistically, you're, you're doing a road trip around the houses uh, to raise money into a company with a purpose in mind. Um, you know, and that is as simple as it is. Uh, it's not easy because it's all about relationships and <laughs> credibility, um, you know, to raise that money in the first place. But it's kind of like going public without going public. You know, right. you've still got the, the, the money roadshow kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good analogy. Uh, and pipes was a little bit like that too. Pri- uh, public investment and private equity. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's something we've considered. Maybe we should have a chat about that after this, about our sure. strategy. <laughs> but yeah, so after Bank of America, financial crisis, my goodness, uh, huge, uh, you know, change evolutionary process at, at work then. What, what then, you know, did you get involved after that? Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> pardon me, you know, Bank of America, great outfit, obviously doing very, very well today. Um, it's a little too banky for me. Um, and I wanted to get more involved with uh, create being creative and strategic, right? So um, I was offered an opportunity to join this RIA, um, which was really kind of uh, running a, a long, only uh, large cap equity, domestic equity uh, portfolio. And they had been doing so for decades with remarkable uh, results. I mean, remarkable results. I think they were like, God, 30 years, uh, two down years. And so uh, just fantastic results. But hey, look, I, as much as that is, uh, you know, a necessity in in any kind of environment, I also think that we should um, kind of diversify as much as possible and give every asset class a, a position in the portfolio, whether it be large or small. So I needed to really kind of develop an alternative investment platform for them so that their clients, my clients, could benefit from the alternative strategies that are out there. So, you know, I had a, a model portfolio, I'd say anywhere between 30 and 50% of it was alternative investments. You know, everything from long short equity, long short uh, debt, uh, currency, um, you know, I had a number of different plays going on. Yeah, that sounds like a fast moving, exciting space to be in. And what yeah, was- well, you, you gotta definitely be nimble, but <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> you got to take a position. If you've got a big portfolio, um, it doesn't have to be, uh, uh, you know, shooting the moon. In fact, that's just probably what you're trying to avoid, but being uh, prudent and selective. Yeah. So in terms of Morgan Stanley, Bank of America and an investment, um, I think it was at Red Arrow Funds kind of thing. What, what was your biggest insights or learnings from that? That then, you know, Give you the momentum to do what you're doing might now because obviously you've learned a hell of a lot from big players um you know what was your biggest insights there yeah well you know <clears throat> sorry <clears throat> beg your pardon um okay. when i was at morgan stanley i got i had the chance to team up with some <laughs> brilliant people um i'm not sure if you've heard of david darst before um but he was a fantastic uh he's managing director there he's a uh, strategist on the retail side for the entire uh, retail division, I believe. And, you know, I remember writing him an email one day and his uh, deputy uh, director um, called me within three minutes 
And she, he advised, he told her to call me when he got my email and we developed this great relationship. And that's when I, when I originally told you about all the intellectual capital that was available at Morgan Stanley, I mean, this is kind of it right here. I mean, I had a, a guy that I worked with that was at Bear Stearns came over to Morgan Stanley. He was on the board of directors for a um, university. He was coming back from Boston. He called me and he said, Trevor, um, can you get us a meeting with the uh, investment bankers on the real estate side at Morgan Stanley, which is you can't do. Um, it, we've got a big deal. We introduced a $15 billion deal to Morgan Stanley uh, for a bond float for what became the city, the blue city of the country of Oman. Um, Morgan passed on it, but Bear Stern took it up. I mean, that is the type of intellectual capital um, that's available to you if you have yeah. connections. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredible. And it's you're always one step removed or two steps removed from the right person that has that. Yeah. yeah? Um, and isn't LinkedIn an incredible platform uh, to create connections? Uh, yeah. Here we are. I'm in Scotland. You're on the other side of the pond, uh, Washington State, I think it is. And uh, we're now on a, on, a, on a live chat together. It's wonderful. It's amazing. We live in incredible times, absolutely incredible times. And, um, you know, through your whole journey, and we'll get to the real estate in a second, who's been your biggest influence in your whole life? I take it as that. It was Morgan Stanley and the kind of people that worked there. Has that been your biggest? Uh, yes. Um, uh, I would absolutely agree with that. Yep. 100%. And what about you? What's been your biggest challenge so far? Well, I, I got to tell you, I mean, the, as the landscape, <clears throat> pardon me, if you work for a company that has a directive, uh, which many of us do, you know, if the landscape changes, it can be challenging to um, uh, succeed with that directive. So, you know, at that fund company that I was working for, it was a small fund company, Arrow uh, Fund uh, Company, you know, five mutual funds, eight ETFs, um, very much alternative investment oriented. And um, which is what drew me to them to begin with. And, you know, the landscape changed to post-2007 here in the United States. I can't speak for anywhere else. You know, well, look, I mean, post-2000, you had all these big companies, Payne Weber, Smith Barney, um, Dean Witter. I mean, all of these companies. And now there were just four. They've been consolidated, Right. So they kind of got a stronghold. And then all of a sudden, post-2007, they all said, you know what? Uh, this this uh, liability is way too big for us. Why don't we dummy this down, start taking way less risk and create models? And that's what they started to do. And as they did that, they started to say, hey, how else can we reduce our overhead? So they started reducing the number of analysts they assigned to all the funds that they analyzed. Well, that cut down the, the, the funds that they were allowing on their platforms. <clears throat> now, only the biggest fund companies were able to participate um, at places like Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. And that cut out the small guy. And if you're going to cut out the small guy, which is what I was a part of, guess what else gets cut? Compensation. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not, is there not a move right now towards more agile boutique firms where family offices are trying to get right to the front line and invest directly with the entrepreneurs kind of thing? Um, yeah. Now, family office is a different ballgame altogether. Far more agile, far more interested in the individual investor and serving the family on a very uh, broad base comprehensively. Um, and if you're going to be comprehensive, 
that one of the things that you have to constantly be looking at um, is how you're going to expand your investment options and your 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 suite of investment opportunities rather than limit them, which is what the wirehouses are doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's great. So obviously you've gone from the, the big boys and then you've morphed into real estate. How, how did that journey happen, that transition? What was the precursor? And back to that, I asked you a question before and you says, I go where the money is. <laughs> and I love yeah. Right. Well, Jesse, Jesse James, the old gunfighter, um, was asked why he robs banks. And he says, because that's where the money is. Exactly. I love that. Um, so how did you morph into real estate? Because that's a, that's a massive departure from what you were doing before. Um, yeah, it was. So um, my family has been involved with real estate since 1980. So um, on a residential side, my mom sold real estate since 1980. Both of my sisters have sold it uh, in this area of Washington, D.C. for 20 years plus. And, um, you know, my family is big family and we've been around for a long time. I've been very involved with Washington, D.C. on many levels. So um, I always kind of uh, spurned and shunned uh, <clears throat> this residential side of things because it was kind of like it, it just lacked structure and culture. And didn't really appeal to me. In fact, I remember I was at uh, a Mother's Day brunch with my mom and my sisters, and um, it was 2006. And this actually um, conversation I had with my sister, who kept pushing me, telling me that it's different this time. That the residential real estate was, you know, people would buy a house for a million dollars, and two months later sell it for, you know, 1.3. No intrinsic improvement whatsoever. Um, outside of a demand push. And so, you know, I, that caused me to write a little piece called uh, Credit the Song and the Siren, which is where I've spelled out what was going to take place in the real estate market um, and the implosion that would ensue. And, um, you know, since that time, you've seen a tremendous move uh, within the real estate space where culture, you, you've seen tremendous differences. And they've adopted a lot of the things that have been in the finance industry uh, and implemented them into the real estate industry. So it's now a, a whole lot more appealing to me. And, you know, I what last year during a pandemic, I think in six months, I made more than I did uh, in my last year working for the fund company in a full year. In a full year. Yeah. It's serious. Wow. Yeah. And that's not owning anything, just, uh, you know, buying and selling or moving right. it on. Yeah. Um, that's that's incredible. And when you see uh, in America, obviously we've got this massive boom just now, you know, led uh, fueled by flight capital. People are trying to get the money. You know, where do I put my money to be safe? Number one, preservation of capital, and a lot of them are trying to get out of fear just now, not knowing what's going to happen. Is hyperinflation coming? Is it not coming? Is it already here? Um, you know, where do you see the real estate market going? I mean, you just alluded to it there in terms of the massive boom and obviously the um, ultimate implosion that comes thereafter, any kind of boom. But is it, where do you see that kind of implosion happen? Yeah. So um, people ask me this all the time because there's a lot of talk where we are about bubbles. And one of the things that I say to people about bubbles is that let's talk about behaviors and character traits and what a bubble uh comprises as far as character trait. Most people assign the term bubble to something when they have this feeling that it's going to pop. Um, I don't necessarily share that feeling or sentiment about the residential real estate around here 
And the reason why is because um, I don't think you'll see a popping take place. I think you'll see a, a very orderly um, dispensing of demand that takes place not sharply, but over a, a manageable period of time. And that will be a form of either sideways movement or minor deflation, all of which we've seen in the real estate market in, in many decades before. There will be some segments that have been propped up very quickly, very rapidly, that probably won't find the same level of support. Those segments will come in the lower tiers of um, those markets. Yeah. And what's your thoughts on interest rates as a result of, you know, are we in an inflation environment? Is it going to get, you know, more inflation going forward with all the printing? Therefore, what, what, what is your viewpoint on rates over the kind of medium term in the next five years kind of thing? Yeah. So the Powell lives right, Powell lives right down the street from me. So I don't want to speak too loudly. Uh, he might hear me. And look, I think the Fed is probably, you know, pigeon toed. I mean, they're going to be stuck in a hole here um, for some time. And, you know, it, uh, some of this will have to depend on um, the Biden administration, what they plan to do with taxes, et cetera, as to what the outcome might look like. I don't see, I see minor bouts of inflation, but completely manageable, some of which can be completely explained away and rationalized. Uh, it's not persistent. It won't last for more than a very short period of time, several months at a time. And then I see it going back to kind of um, where we are presently, which is a two or sub 2% um, inflation rate. And that's a concern to me because with all the growth that we've had in the real estate market, in the economy, or, or rather in the stock market, um, I think that's directly correlated to um, you know, uh, the Fed's activities. And so when and if that goes bye-bye, uh, you better hope it goes bye-bye at some point on a constructive basis, because otherwise we're going to have a big problem with currency and everything else. At some point, just has to that that bird has to land at some point. Yeah. Um, but I don't see the rates going anywhere um, meaningfully against us anytime soon. No, that's my opinion as well. Hopefully, hopefully we're right, because the other side of that is not a good outcome for anyone. Um, no. no, for sure. And um, so, in terms of uh, you know, the real estate, we love the real estate market as well in terms of we're on a similar path where commercials kind of down, you know, going down, office is going down. So we are kind of repurposing uh, buying commercial at sensible cap rates uh, and basically getting the, the office part upstairs for negligible or zero and then create high value apartments in there and selling them off to have a low value commercial cash flow on the ground stairs, downstairs. Mm -hmm. Usually it's like a sandwich. We're keeping yeah. Floor, we're keeping the top floor and selling everything in between yep. <laughs> to eradicate yep. the debt. So that's our kind of model going forward. And um, we love to work with private investors to facilitate that. Um, you know, it's just a, it's, it's very back to that timing thing. It's very much a timing thing right now. We've got this crossroads of commercial going down and residential, you know, having that buoyancy and liquidity. You've always got liquidity in residential. You can sell them quick. There's always some kind of program by the government uh, facilitating you know, somebody getting into the market kind of thing. Um, but, you know, for, you know, going forward, for the, the roaring 2020s, it's, it's going to be the second roaring 2020s is going to be known for. Well, what's your one big thing this decade? Um, you know, what's your one big thing that you want to do this decade? 
Is there one specific or just carry on the real estate uh, train? Um, or is, it, is that going to morph into something else, you think? Well, in this particular instance, I'm kind of building a book of business again as a client base. And, you know, building those businesses take uh, time. And once you've constructed them, and this is one of the things that that attracted me to the industry this time was that they have um, legacy programs, basically, which the finance industry did on the retail side. You know, you can basically sell your book. You've monetized it on right. some level. So I'm I'm pretty uh, adamant about building this. Um, and I'd say probably over the next 10 years, that's where I'll be. I, you know, our family basically, um, <clears throat> you know, we did a 1031 recently uh, with a property that was located down south and then um, took that and put it into a property up north. A very good investment. Um, and, uh, you know, we looked to probably vacation up in that area and spend some time there in the coming years too. Um, but if there's anything that I could do uh, over the next 10 years that I've planned to do so far, it would be to develop this business and to just uh, get a bunch of people, teach them how pre present culture, structure, teach them how to approach uh, business maybe a little bit differently. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully it will be, it will be a, a beacon and, and a representation of what this industry can become on the residential side. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I love where you're going. I love the residential space and uh, love to keep in touch because um, obviously you're a man with depths of experience in various different areas, which is really exciting. And uh, so anyway, Trevor, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh, it's always great to get people from diverse backgrounds onto the the podcast to hear from them you know what they do in terms of acquisitions uh so thanks very much and hopefully we'll see you again soon trevor thank you dan thanks for having me take care cheers <laughs> cheers